0: Transformationist is dedicated to real stories of transformation and the insights and actions that make it possible. Our guests share from their own stories the strategies and experiences that can help you shape transformation in your own life. Whether you are changing your mind, responding to change, or designing a life different from what you have right now, my hope is that these stories will inspire you and help you on the way. Hi, I'm Tash McGill and welcome to The Transformationist. In my experience, when you find people who have found a thread of uh, creativity and energy, it's worthwhile uh, keeping them around. And today's guest on the Transformationist podcast is one such person. Jeff Crabtree is a speaker, author, researcher. He's a filmmaker, a multi-award winning songwriter and music producer. The list of titles and accolades is long. Um, There are, in fact, uh, hundreds, perhaps even thousands of creative works that uh, that have Jeff's brilliance scattered across them, including the book that he wrote with his uh, psychologist wife, Julie, called Living with a Creative Mind. It's really a handbook of sorts for creative people and those who live and uh, live with them and and perhaps even love them. Um, So when it comes to talking about creativity and the transformational process and the creative process and the transformation that comes from that and really all manner of things, I couldn't imagine not inviting Jeff into the conversation that and you are in fact probably uh, my favourite Australian. So welcome to the show, Jeff. <laughs> Thanks.
1: There's only 23 million or 24 million. I'm one in 24 million.
0: Well, it's been a ruthless. It's been a ruthless interview process. But uh, I'd like to say that that so far you've been performing well.
1: Oh, I'm glad. I mean, I'm glad it's been a ruthless interview process, um, and it's whittled down to this um, because uh, otherwise it wouldn't be valuable to be just considered <laughs> the the favourite out of the 24 million of my country persons.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's not, it's not often that you get to, uh, that I get to encounter somebody who is so always refreshing to me um, with what they're thinking about and talking about and, uh, and doing in terms of their, not just their, their life work, but their, their being. So that's, that probably helped you out.
1: well, Well, you're so, that's very kind. Thank you. That's very kind. And it's very, and it was a wonderfully kind introduction too. I certainly don't, I sort of recognise a little bit of my things in there, but I, but, but, you know, but thank you. It was very kind.
0: <laughs> well, I do, I do try and I do try and be kind at least in the first five minutes, and then no, and sure, then no,
1: slip the knife in <laughs> later on. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs>
0: exactly. On. So, t- um, tell us a little bit about uh, what life is, what your life is is like, and is all about right now, because obviously that's that that introduction, that list of things, you know, covers a broad span of of time and history, but. You know, it's um, you surely you don't get
1: up every day and do all 15 of those things. No, uh, you, I don't think it's possible to, to do all 15 of those things at once. I mean, I'm a big believer in the fact that multitasking is a fiction, that you kind of um, serial monotask, you really go from one thing to the next. Um, so that's pretty much it. I go from one thing to the next. And um, what my life is like right now is um, is sort of absolutely and utterly chaotic. Uh, that would be how I would describe it. and i and I sort of think it's sort of at a normal I, I think a normal level of chaos for me is what is what actually makes it good. Um I'm uh, full disclosure here, very bad when things are a lot the same. So I get bored. I wouldn't say that I get bored easily, but I get bored with the sameness, even of the most fascinating things, you know, even of the most interesting things, you know like I play music. I'm, and I, and, um, and, and I do lots, I do live performances, you know, and I, I really love that. But then there comes a time when I go, man, I'm, I'm sort of even getting bored of this, even as great as it is, you know. I know that sounds really like a terrible thing to confess, but full disclosure, I get bored. So I, um, I uh, before the boredom really sets in, I've sort of learnt to keep like a multiple things on the boil. And I think I've also learnt that I feel most alive when I'm on the edge of failure. In, wow. In, in, and I'm sort of on the edge of failure in all of them, right? All, all the things I'm doing right now. So, to give you an, to give you the overview, I'm I'm doing a PhD. I'm, I'm constantly on the edge of failure with that. I'm researching workplace toxicity in the music industry in Australia and New Zealand, and um, uh, um, that's difficult because I've got to get convince people to talk about their experiences of workplace bullying. And and even though I'm promising confidentiality to them all. Um, it's a very small industry, and and I think there's a fear that if you participate, then people will be able to identify you even just from your story, even though you're de-identified. So I'm doing that. Mm,
2: that that's mm. a
1: three, That's a three and a half year process. Um, I'm also currently lecturing in music business and professional practice at the university that I'm studying at, um, which is a sort of a bizarre. Thing. I sort of walk in one moment and I'm a student and then albeit a, a postgraduate student and I walk in another moment and I'm a lecturer. I'm actually, I'm, funnily enough, I'm the course coordinator of this new course that's never been delivered before uh, um, and then I'm composing music. I'm composing music for a commercial client um, and then I've been attached to uh, compose a film score for later this year, although the film hasn't gone into production yet, so that may all go away. We have a number of contracts with major creative uh, organisations in Australia um, and and then one of those is to supply an online service and the other is to supply a, um, you know, sort of training, um, a face-to-face training. Um, Then I do sort of one-off speaking gigs around the place and that takes me um, around the world. I'm actually weirdly... um, in as an Australian, I'm in New Zealand for this podcast. <laughs> while you were in San Diego,
0: <laughs>
1: when and when you emailed me and said, "Come on, let's do it," and I went, "Great, yeah, perfect, I'm going to be there," and you're not here. So, uh,
0: yeah, that's, hey, how, I, that's how it rolls. The well, global you're, community. You're,
1: well, you're you're here in in the in the in the in the in clo- the safe enclosed space of this cloud, you know, organized conversation. So, it feels like you're here. <laughs> Uh, anyway, um, and so that gives you a glimpse. It's nothing's the same. Um, after my last job, I swore I'd never work for anybody ever else again. And of course, now I'm working for a university. But it's but my way of coping for that is to go. Oh, I'm only doing that part time, and it ends in a month. So you know, hey, all good.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and is it as working in academia? I mean it's it's obviously it's quite in some respects it's quite different from, you know, perhaps where you started as a as a you know, music as a as a you know, a musician, musician. Yep. But uh, but I would I mean I would imagine that working in academia is not quite like working in a corporate somewhere where you turn up nine to five and, you know, punch a time card.
1: No, I no it's not at all. Actually, you're right. And I mean, I did I mean I started as a I mean I would started before I was a musician, I was a high school teacher. So I've got some sense of um that, you know what it means to be in front of a group of people and have to deliver um have to deliver something that they grab hold of, but, uh, but in between being in between I had a period of time there I did nothing but music professionally. And then I was the principal of an arts college. So I've got some kind of pedagogical bent that um and i keep sort of saying i'm never going back into education but i keep coming back into it but this time i kind of like it uh because i'm sort of i'm in the space where i can actually do what i want this is a course i'm teaching that's never been delivered before so i was just handed 45 pages of outline and, and then it was up to me to flesh it out without too much guidance apart from the outline and, and it's been fun because i'm able to explore a whole bunch of new territory
0: well, and I guess in many respects, you you are the con- like your life is a one constant evolution and transformation of of at least role, you know, one after the other after the other. Um, but do you find that there are are there core threads um, of are there core threads to your work that are present regardless of of what phase that what phase you're in? Are there things that you find yourself doing uh, as a as a course coordinator and and as a as a lecturer that you you know, actually recognise as, oh, yes, you know, I've done this before or this this feels like the same process but in a different forum?
1: Uh, You know, that is a very insightful question Uh, and the answer to that question is yes. Um, And it goes to, I think, um, what I would, the word I would use is vocation, which Think other people would call, you know, as like a calling or destiny or purpose. There are all these other words for it, but I really like the word vocation. For me, it sort of means that I feel like there's a shape that I have mm. to occupy, and what and so, or the shape that I have to occupy in the world. And so, that that vocation, I think I can identify that as being um, um, sort of twofold one is to be a storyteller, mm. and the other is to, um, nurture and care for and mentor emerging creative young creative thinkers or younger creative thinkers
2: um, mm.
1: younger creative thinkers because i've taken to lying about my age now to so um <laughs> so the field is narrowing down um,
0: is, is there a point at which you have to start lying about your age or or did you just decide to experiment one day and thought it sounded all right so it stuck
1: it was impulsive. It was an impulsive moment, and I was with somebody who didn't who didn't really know me, had no reason to be nice to me. And I said, "I think I'm going to lie about my age." And she said, "Well, I think you could pull off." dot, dot, dot. She mentioned the figure, and I went, "Yep, yeah, that's it. That's that's how old I am." And <laughs> and it was ten years younger than I actually am. And I went, "No, I, uh, you know, there we are." So uh, I, <laughs>
0: that's fine. I mean, if, if your vocation is storyteller, then recreate the story that if it doesn't suit you. I mean, Correct. I think that, that's and that sits
1: within the boundaries. Correct, correct. Um, and so it's a we, uh, yes, exactly. And so going, I mean, going, but going back to the your, this is a core theme of your podcast, uh, um, which is the notion of transformation and what that looks like. Um, and then, of course, the very curious thing for you to go, to you, for you to identify actually a thing that is in me, which is I've realised that I have, in essence, some core things that keep driving me. And the things maybe that keep driving me back from time to time into education, or in, or in this case in academia, is actually the, the the I I have a drive to to mentor and pass on what I know, what I found, what I've discovered to creative thinkers, so that mostly for their survival and well being, not to and I'm, I'm not it's not about creating the cult of Jeff. Um, <laughs> that's not. Um, because that's a, uh, I feel like that would be what a waste of time and energy that would be, um, and I and if you see if I still, because there is in that whole notion of being a mentor for young creative people, there is in in well, it's certainly in some creative industries. There's a real guru. Um, there's a kind of a guru mentality or a guru a, mm-hmm. a guru-like approach to it, you know. And I think this is certainly true um, in um, in I think in the film and theatre industries where some. I've seen some creative leaders adopt a guru-like um, quality and, and, and a guru-like stance, and the reason for it is it creates a great revenue stream when you've got a bunch of devoted followers, and it's also really great for your sense of personal security to have a lot of people, you know, um, sort of hanging on your every word. Um, and I'm not—I'm uh, not trying to create a cult of Jeff, and the reason I'm not is I wouldn't want to be a part of it, so I wouldn't want to join. So you know, there's a problem. Um, I'm... <laughs> Uh, and so I feel like I do tend to go from one thing to the next and um and so the so what for me is um is kind of transformational in the way that that emerges is that is that my evolution as a storyteller and my evolution as a mentor of creatives is something something that has changed to shape constantly throughout my life and i don't think um I don't think I had any real idea that this was who I was for quite for many, many years, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, and it sort of, I suppose it came to me in the last 15 years and in in little bits and pieces, it came to me in little bits and pieces that this was what I was, the shape I needed to take and I always thought of myself as a musician, you know, and a songwriter uh, until I started to to apply the the storytelling craft to public speaking or I started to apply it to stand-up comedy in between the songs, you know, and I started mm. to, and then I, and then we finished up writing a book, and that's there's a lot of stories in that book. Um, and I, I realized that narrative, and na- our narratives are, are how we um, situate and contextualize our identity, you know. I think we even, when we think about, I mean, I'm talking about all humans as, as, um, how we begin to think about ourselves is in terms of our story and such a that's therefore it's a powerful way of getting to the core of who we are and getting to the core of what maybe the big ideas might be and so then for me the narrative is as as you've described it some of those things that i that i apply the narrative to i apply the narrative techniques if you like to um you know to the songwriting and i apply the narrative techniques to the the writing of the book and to the public speaking and, and you know, and all of these other things. Uh, so that if you simplify it and pull it down to its basic, that's what I'm doing. I'm telling stories and I'm men- mentoring young creatives. And, and the research is actually about that. The, the, the research is about finding out what's going on at the core of the music industry in terms of a very, very specific set of behaviours. Because then, if we can shed light on that and understand it, then, then then we can plan ahead and do something about how we might transform it and change it where it's been unhealthy. So it all sort of everything sort of swings back to mm. those core cool, cool things. So
0: does you, that you, answer,
1: that answers does that answer your question? That was quite mm, an
0: answer. I, I, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's interesting to hear you know I, the the way that you describe it as narrative and understanding the story, uh, the storylines, um, the storylines of our own identity, you know I think and and, we, and when you mentioned that it was something that you only maybe really have started to piece together over the last 15 years, I, I, I think partly that's the blueprint for everybody um, is that you is that you go wandering around to figure out actually what is the narrative that makes sense and perhaps it's not. Um, you know, perhaps 30 or 40 years ago when the way we viewed work and vocation and career was slightly different. It was less attached to our core, it was less attached to, to it, perhaps our kind of core identity and more something that you just did. You found a career and you did it for, for 40 years. Um, now, we, you know, I think more more broadly across society, we do experiment with a number of different um careers or jobs to then figure out what our actual vocation is so I thought that was interesting um, I'm really interested in how you came to identify this this idea of workplace toxicity in the music business or in the in, in those creative industries as something that you wanted to as something that you wanted to to research and to to do work in I mean how did you how did you how did you come to that?
1: right yeah, I sort of stumbled into it, actually. And I think some of the some of the um, maybe some of the greatest things that have gone on for me, I feel like I've stumbled into them. um I'm, and what you basically what you basically just said about you know what used to be thought of, like this was how life was, you know western uh, first world in, industrial societies, you know you know we get a career and you're in it for forty years. And I go, yeah, I mean, man that's what my parents were all about. Um, and they looked upon my some of my early choices with horror, mm. um, but it turns out that I mean all I was doing was following my following my nose, and it turn, but it turns out that the, that, that sort of instinctive um, shiftlessness, if, if rootlessness about a particular job, um, or about um, turns out to be more appropriate to the 21st century than they could have ever perceived and both my parents have passed away. So I can't at least go, I can't go back to them and go, see, I told you so. Don't mm. even have that satisfaction. But um, they, <laughs> they, how dare they? No, they. They, how dare they, exactly. Um, but they were, but it's like that generation is ill-prepared and I think actually many people from my generation or are, are ill-prepared for the way the world is becoming, which is, you know, which is much more as you describe it. Um, and having the notion of a vocation as opposed to a job equips you to be able to travel from one situation to the next in terms of your emotional uh, world and in terms of your sense of what you're doing. It, 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 instead of having a career, you, it's something else. You know, you may have multiple careers. I, I'll, I, um, it, it prepares you emotionally for change. Um, that, I, I mean, I'm just going back to that comment you made. I felt like, you know, it's an incredibly important thing for people to realise. Um, some of the jobs that people are coming out of university for, prepared for and have spent four years training for or five years training for, they won't exist in 15 years' time.
2: Mm. And
1: so what do you do then? Um, so, sorry, I mean, I, that completely, I completely didn't answer the last question you asked me, <laughs> 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 which, which you need to come back to and tell me, ask me again what it was because I can't rewind the, non, the non-existent digital tape. Um,
0: so how did you how
1: did you arrive at oh that's right the research doing the research yeah. Yeah, I, stu- I stumbled into it totally um and i heard a story about a um a young um, musician who had gone uh, to she would traveled interstate to go to a, a, a you know a festival and she was um, uh, i don't know if she was performing at the festival or not performing at the festival and essentially um she found herself uh, pressured to uh, engage in a, an interpersonal encounter with another person who she was wasn't didn't have any attraction or um, or affection for,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and the the mediating factor in that was that she was she'd been um, she'd been sort of nicely um, warmed up with a lot of alcohol, let's put it that way, um, and. So the, her next days immediately find that were filled with a great deal of regret. Mm. Um, and so I didn't know, I, I had no idea who the identity of that individual was, but I just heard that story. Um, and then um, I, and then I heard lots of other stories about um, fundamentally kind of a sort of a misogyny that seemed to be at work in the Australian music industry it was a bastion of men, uh, and then um, the other thing that was a, a and this seems this seems terribly trivial, but my wife was doing a PhD in uh, in psychology in the intersection between psychology and creative things, oh, mental health and creativity was her area of research, and I just sort of felt like I couldn't imagine, um, you know, walking walking around. And it was Doctor Crabtree, Mister Crabtree. Not that that's not that she doesn't, she wouldn't deserve it. But I just felt like it should be Doctor and Doctor, I, <laughs> and not that it's and not that our relationship is in any way competitive. Although it absolutely is competitive. And so, she was, and then she was saying, "Look, you need to do a PhD." Um, I think part of it was she sort of she sort of knew me better than I did myself. That sense, but I mean, she is a psychologist, so you would expect that she's an expert in human behaviour, and particularly with the specimen that she has living sleeping in her bed living in the bed in the house that she's living in so we went we went i went and contacted the guy who had been my supervisor for my master's degree and i'd gotten a, a, i'd got a i did a research masters when i was running into arts college because i thought we were going to get a degree st- granting status and i needed to have a you need to have what's called n plus 1 you need to have a degree above the one that you're teaching you yeah?
2: mm mm-hmm.
1: So I went and got a master's, a research master's, which is an MA honours, and then I contacted him and he'd actually moved universities and got promoted and he's the head of the school, which means he's a professor, at um, uh, a university that it's called UTS, University of Technology, Sydney. And, and uh, we've just, our university has just, suddenly gone into the top 200 in the times. We're just suddenly in one of the top 200 universities in the world, which is really great. Oh. I, well,
0: actually, do you know, tragic, tragically, uh, the University of Auckland just just fell out of that uh, top 200 list.
1: Right. So, <laughs> well, I'm think, I, here's what I feel. Uh, I feel that the UTS getting into the top 200 can only be attributed to my contribution. <laughs> Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. And then <laughs> the fact that I wasn't at Auckland University was the, um, that was their mistake I feel like they could have offered me a place and
2: all, mm-hmm. would, have,
1: all would have been well mm-hmm. so because um, uh, I that's when you look at it that's the only dif- that's the only difference really between Auckland University uh,
0: that complete it's the only, it's only variable
1: me. I'm yeah. the only variable so um, anyway so that notwithstanding uh, so I went and saw him and he kind of just said oh do you want to put yourself through this but you know at the same time I thought oh you know I um. He then hit, he he then just basically did this classic academic thing, which is okay. Give me a thesis title, which puts you on the spot. You have to come up with a thesis title straight away. And the only story that I had in the back of my mind was the story of this young woman and the misogyny, and I just went churnsmiths and toxicity, and I think I had a, a different title, you know, workplace abuse in the in the music industry. And he goes, great, hasn't been. He just said, great, hasn't been researched. So this was t- two thousand and sixteen And October. He said. Enrollments close in ten days. Write me, <laughs> write me a five thousand word submission, and download the the enrollment form.
0: But that would be your sweet spot, right? Because that well, pushes you to the it pushes you right to the edge of uh, you know imminence and a creative deadline, and 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 a, and the, the precipice of commitment. Like right. you've got ten days, you've got to do it. You've got to write it. You've got to make the thing, and go.
1: Right. And so, I, in fact, that's exactly what – and you're dead right. And I'm doing everything that my mother said not to do. And she always said, don't know, don't go near the edge of the cliff. <laughs> and, so I'm, and so, metaphorically, that I think that's where I'm at my best. I'm best right near the edge of the cliff. So, it's terrifying. Uh, and then, of course – and then I come on a podcast and talk about it, and I'm only halfway through the degree, and there's no guarantee that I'm going to get it. And of course, now I'm telling the world I'm doing a PhD – so that makes, I'll get off this thing and go, you now the fear of failure is just ratcheted up a, another notch yet again. Yes,
0: um, yeah. But it's um, self actualizing To talk about uh, it is to begin the self actualization process.
1: Mm, yeah, well, totally. So t- so that's how I fell into it and it kind of fell out like, that's the one story I had and he knew because he's obviously a senior academic in the field of music studies. He, he knew what's been studied and what's not been studied and so he goes, yeah, he said you've got like, Ten days, and I went away and wrote my four to five thousand word thing. Um, and I found some um, some great articles um, that I think I'd already been in possession of. One, there was a big study done in two thousand and fifteen about the nature of the entertainment industry, what it's like to work in it. It was not just music; it was music, and it was theatre and film, uh, um, and uh, Wrote for crew and broadcast, it's like everybody who is in the in the entertainment industry in Australia, there's 2,800 participants and it paints a very, very dark picture of um, high rates of anxiety and depression and, and buried in that. So that's actually caused an enormous amount of attention on the issues of mental health and creative people and the workplace experience. And, and at the moment in Australia, the big concern is how do we, crisis manage it. And so there's a crisis hotline now for musicians and there's all this, run, everybody's running around trying to figure out what we can band-aid with the problem, whereas what I feel is we need to get to what are the causal factors, What's, what are the underlying things that are that are causing this distress.
2: Mm.
1: So that's where Julie's research is in one part of that and then my research is in another part of that because some of it has got to be to do with the cognition and the way your brain works uh, if you're a creative thinker, and then part of it has got to do with the environment you're in. And so uh, so it's sort of, I think, in retrospect, it added up and made more sense. Um, but really the process, the experience of it was me falling into it. And then I I struggled to, do, to get with my ma- – I felt like I struggled doing my master's. I mean, I didn't struggle with the research part, but I struggled with the writing part. Um, but it was really funny going back and, start, and writing that 5,000 words again uh, for the, to get in because I got into the degree and I won a scholarship. <laughs> which is even more infuriating for Julie, <laughs> because I, I'm getting money for doing this uh, from the Australian government, um, and they. Um, when I came back, he said, "How long did it take you to write this?" And I went, "Oh, you know, about two and a half days." He goes, "Well," he said, "if you keep doing it like that, you won't. You'll make my job easy," which was a nice compliment. I and mean, he doesn't. My supervisor doesn't pass many compliments like that. But it, it's a. Um, I found it like it was like okay, it's like a style like academia because you talked about it earlier, academia, what I think is it's like a it's a style and the writing of it is like a genre and it's like putting on a coat, you know
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and it's sort of it's certainly it's not a coat I wear often, but it's a coat I put it on again and it's like oh uh, yeah, this is familiar, I know where all the pockets are and I know.
0: Well, how it's like it. learning how to play jazz or how to play blues or how to play country. You know, right. once, once you learn the framework and uh, and and how it fits together,
1: yeah,
0: then yeah, I it's a gigantic
1: it's- game, Tash. It's a gigantic game. Except, and you just, except that nobody is actually really teaching you the rules of the game, and so you kind of have to work them out. Um, and the rules are all slightly different for every different version of academia. So they're slightly different in in psychology. Actually, they're very different in psychology. They're slightly different in in music studies, which is where I am. They're slightly different in engineering. Um, I mean, the fundamentals are kind of the same, but you know, I mean, honestly, my wife laughs at my referencing and my and the kind of sources I use because she would never be from anyway. Um, you know, it's not. This is not about who's doing better in their degree than who. This is not about. It's <laughs> not sorry, a competition.
0: I have to talk to Julie next week, and then yeah, uh, she can get,
1: <laughs> get her on. She can get her on. You'll get the other side. I mean, that would. It's only fair that the other party gets the right of reply. <laughs>
0: Um, the only reason why I thought I can't have you both on the same podcast at the same time is that a how would pin you down both in the same place but but I would never get a word in.
1: No, I would neither of us would get a word in I, would <laughs> I mean no, she's very look she's incredibly polite but once she gets going it's all really it's gold so you just don't want to you know you don't want to. <laughs> and anyway. um, so I mean
0: 2016 uh, obviously, I'm just like i'm I'm thinking about the timeline, and I'm also thinking about the context because I think there's something about what creative thinkers go through that I really want to talk to you about. But there's Come another on. layer of that, um, yes. which is in two thousand and sixteen, you know I don't think any of us could have imagined the context we would be living in now, which is obviously when you talk about misogyny, and when you talk about um, you know when you talk about uh, interpersonal encounters um Mm. through coercion um we live now in a we live now in the era of you know me too we we live in an era where the mental health of musicians is is front and center um you know the number of the the number of suicides of young artists in particular young musicians in the last you know two years it, it almost feels like that that list is is growing at an exponential rate and so you know, there's, in some respects, there's there's a real urgency and a real cultural relevance to the work that you're doing that yeah, I, has yes. the potential to make a real impact and to be to be change-making in the lives yes. of young musicians.
1: <clears throat> yes, uh, it does. Um, the Absolutely. 2000, October 2016, I was thinking about this, and then the first year of a PhD, you don't do any research per se, actual gathering data. You spend a lot of time reading other people's work and then writing about it. and Developing a methodology, <clears throat> so the Harvey Weinstein, um, the Me Too thing re- exploded in about um, November of 2017, mm. um, and then I just as I was in the process of getting ethics approval for my research, so I had a methodology. I've been and I've been working on. Then I'd really been working on thinking about it for over a year by that stage. And then by the time my my data, by the time I started collecting data, which is interviewing people, which is March. The Harvey Weinstein thing was, you know, only four months old, but it was so hot. It's still hot, <clears throat> and um, and then, of course, I sort of thought, "Wow, everybody's going to want to talk to me because it's current," you know. But actually, it's been surprising. Quite a few people are. Their reaction is, "Who's this guy? This Johnny come lately?" So they go, they think, "Here's a guy jumping on the bandwagon." Um, and mm. trying to profit out of our pain, I, I think that's a kind of a that's a that might be that may well be. A, nobody's actually said that to me directly, but that may well. I think that might be a view that's being held, because there's some resistance to people talking to me. Um, I, I, you know, like for the research part. You know, I've got plenty of people going, "Wow, I've got lots of stories." But when it comes to actually doing the research, they go, "They go, yeah, no." Um, <clears throat> and um, uh, the thing is, I've been working on it long. Um, you know, longer than I was working on it longer than the than the timelines would suggest, you know. Um, so it's current. Um, it's not just current in the music industry; it's current in the film industry, and it's current. It's timely. You're right. Mm. Um, um, and the um, there are a lot of people. There are a lot of people trying to jump on the bandwagon, I guess, and get in, get in, get in, and sort of, um, I suppose, in terms of their career and reputation, kind of make a killing um we wrote the book uh, the creative mind book we 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 published it first in 2010 so we were um i suppose we had the benefit of saying that of being able to say look we were we were thinking about these things it, wrote, it took us 5 years to write the book actually so we were thinking about these things in
0: 2005 mm. so let's let's switch gears a little bit and talk about talk about the creative thinker uh, because obviously yes. The creative thinker is one of the things that I enjoy about about that book, and and you know has me recommending it to a lot of different people. Um, you know, all of you know what eight eight or so years on. One of the yep. things that I enjoy about it is that it, it it doesn't silo creativity into musicianship or the fine arts or even into you know the the finer practice of say advertising copywriting. It's really a book about. It's really a book about how the creative mind works and what some mm. of those creative processes but also challenges are. And I think that's really that's 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 a kind of empowering book that hasn't previously existed. Um, and I don't know that that thinking has has existed in such a positive, in such a positive framework, you know, there's there's, there's certainly lots of conversation around, um, you know, how to manage the creative mind with this idea that, that to be creative, you, to be a creative person or to have some sort of creative outworking, you must then also be somewhat drawn to the melancholy, uh, that you're probably a struggling artist, that you are... Um, You know, there are all of these, all of these archetypes that are, that are stereotypes and, and some for good reason, but not necessarily all of them are helpful. Um, But, but to introduce this idea that there are, there are ways or tools or things to understand about what it's like to live with a creative mind that can help Mm -hmm. you actually navigate your way through. That for me was really, was really fascinating. Mm -hmm. How did you land on it?
1: Right, um, we landed on it um, because uh, this really, I have to pay credit to my wife for this, she said one night we need to write a book, it's called Living With A Creative Mind because um, you, I was running an arts college, you've learned how to wrangle and get positive outcomes out of all of these creative students and then the other thing is we've learned something together uh, about it because she was involved, you know, in helping to manage their emotional world because she was running a counselling service that was in parallel and then she said, we've learned something together, plus also you've done, you've done it, you seem to done it, you've done it yourself, what is it about that? And so that's how we landed on it. She had this idea and we then had to bring it into being. So the um, part of the reason I think it came to being was because as a psychologist, she is absolutely endlessly fascinated by the internal processes of humans and... I didn't know this, but I didn't find this out until, um, you know, like 25 or 30 years after the event. But not long after we were married, she, we were driving somewhere, she asked me a question. And I t- she asked me what I was thinking. And then I told her, sort of like a stream of consciousness. I sort of played back what I'd just been thinking over the last sort of three or four minutes. And she, she stopped me mid-sentence after about a minute and a half and said, okay, you can stop now. And I went, okay, great. And then she never mentioned anything more about it. Um, until we were speaking at a conference, a keynote conference. And by the way, the other keynote at that conference was the guy who was the producer of Wolverine. So it was a pretty high-powered kind of event. And then she told this story. She said to me, listen, I'm just going to introduce us and then you can take over. She told that story and then said, you know, at the at the time I thought, oh, my God, he's ment- I married a guy who's mentally ill. He's mentally ill. This is pre-schizophrenia. He's schizophrenic or bipolar and I can't get out of it. And... I, then so, and then she goes, Will you please welcome my husband? So, you know, suddenly there's you know, 250 people rolling in the aisles, you know, and she's introduced me as a guy. And then because she said, Well, I realized he wasn't mentally ill later, but I realized he was just creative. And so that I think that's where we landed on it. We landed on it because as a psychologist, she was reading the research that that looked at all the qualities of um thinking, co- you know, like personality factors and cognitive factors that are associated with creative output. But psychologists view the, the world and they view humans mostly through the lens of dysfunction. That makes sense. So all the money in psychology is about how you get people who are unwell well or how you treat them or how you manage them. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, or, so given that they're looking, so like in the same way that doctors tend to look at us through the lens of, you know, what have you, what's wrong with you? You know, it's, if you go into a doctor's surgery, it goes, nothing wrong with me man. I just want to, you know, have a chat. They send you out, you know, or well, they'll take you 60 bucks and then send you out, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, that so they're, they're, they're focused on what your problems are and the same with the psychology, focused on what the problems are. And so the initial, the, all the initial research that associated um, kinds of feature qualities of creative thinking were all associated with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. And mm. so, <clears throat> so you're getting this way in which we're all, creative thinkers are being lumped into this, you know you're borderline mentally ill or really you are mentally ill and that mythos that myth survives to this day like the notion of the the mad genius you know uh and you know there's been a lot of there's been a there's a lot of internet activity around it, and people still are writing blog posts in which they kind of come up with this old these old ideas that you know that it's your border borderline you're mentally ill, you're borderline mentally Ill. if you're not mentally ill, you're kind of borderline mentally ill whereas. Our view is that this, these kinds of thinkings are actually, like what they do is they make you, the psychologists call them vulnerabilities. So one of them is, um, one of the psychological vulnerabilities is what's called, they call openness to experience, which we say is, uh, you know, in the need to take risk.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: or, or another one is, uh, they call it lots of divergent thinking, which which we call fluid thought, you know, ra- like rapid, thought that jumps from one thing to the next, you know, and they get that's a sign of you've got bipolar disorder. Whereas we go, no, that's fluid thinking. You're making unique associations between things that other people aren't making. And then there's another one called uh, reduced pre-attentive filtering or low latent inhibition, Um, which doesn't sound, it sounds terrible. Uh, uh, What it, it means, what we call it skinlessness, and what it means is highly creative thinkers are actually taking in more sensory information mm-hmm. Physic- physically. They're filtering less. Um, and then there's another one called um, impulsive nonconformity, which is exactly what it sounds like. It means being, being impulsively nonconformist to social norms. Um, and there's another one that's like, you know, where, where uh, uh, it's called reduced uh, um, premature closure, uh, resistance to premature closure. Which sounds like a terrible affliction and but what it really means is you don't I, I highly creative thinkers are comfortable with ambiguity and they don't need one single solution in fact one single solution is boring and doesn't interest them at all happy with questions happy with things being in paradox and so you see if you look at all of those sort of there are six of these vulnerabilities that that and they're called vulnerabilities because psychologists go oh, i see that is a that one there is associated with bipolar that one there is associated with schizophrenia
0: that well, their, is their framework program. is that they're looking for things to fix, right?
1: Their framework is that they're looking for things that are wrong with you, exactly. Mm. And so, what if? So we are basically going. No, wait a minute. These vulnerabilities that you call them vulnerabilities, they're not just. They don't just make you necessarily necessarily vulnerable to mental illness, but what if they can? What if they make you not vulnerable, but open or wired to be able to engage at the creative process? And the creative process, more than, say, normal people or, you know, the average person. And so what that means is a creative process, creativity is just a process, right? It starts with curiosity. Like this is where creativity is. If you can imagine like a, a circle, really, at the top of the circle is like curiosity. So all the high, most creative people are the most curious, right, which is why you're running a podcast. I mean, why are you running a podcast? So, you, I mean, it's not like you're going to make, your, your, you know, the, your million-dollar... Investment is a podcast. I mean, part of why you're running a podcast is because actually you're really curious about all of these things, and you want to know more personally for yourself, right? Mm, um, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You personally, I'm saying. So, and then why are you? What, and then I'm, now I'm talking to the people who are listening to to this podcast. I mean, why are you listening? You're listening because you're curious, uh, and and then curious people are creative because they're they're always searching out new things. Because if you're not curious, then you're not. Then everything is the same for you. Nothing is changing. So curiosity is where it starts. And then the next part of the creative process is, that is, a, is a moment of actually seeing something. So first of all, I'm curious. Then I'm, now suddenly I'm seeing something, which is about being open. It's what often uh, people who are sort of, I suppose, amateur in creative things or who look at creativity from the outside think, talk of inspiration a lot. You know, people will say, you know, what inspired you to do this or what inspired you to do that? But the reality It's it's not so much inspiration, but I just saw something. And, of course, if I'm vulnerable to seeing things because I'm I'm filtering information less and I'm able to make connections between things because I'm doing fluid thinking and I was doing something I hadn't done before because I'm a risk taker, you see, that puts me in the zone for being able to see things. Mm. And And then the next part of the circle is I chew that over and mull it over on the inside. So it's like I'm curious, I see, I think. And then out of that, then, I make something, which is why, as you correctly identified, creativity isn't just about the arts, things that we traditionally associated with. Creativity is about anything at all. Um, anything at all that requires this different way of thinking, where you're curious, you see something that other people aren't seeing or have seen but, but ignored and you work out, you chew that over and you work out what that might be and that's a product of, that's a, a product of what you believe and it's a product of your imagination and it's a product of your um, trying to make meaning of things and then you make something out of it. Some people make novels, some people make paintings, some people make plays, some people make sandwiches, you know. Um, I mean, that's, don't take it lightly. Some people make f- food and that it changes everything for the people around them. Some people make environments. You know, some people make um, uh, uh, some people make engineering solutions to problems. Some people make new scientific discoveries. Some people make new ways of doing things. It. it um, some people make new ways of, what of. There's just about any just about anything we do. There are new ways of doing things.
0: Well, in, in some respects, I think that creative process that you're that you're talking about is actually in essence that is the creative that is the process of transformation in any space so the process of innovation and of discovery and of uh, making things new or making things differently and I think there's a really like there's a really shallow commercial um, productization that has happened to creativity in you know the last century and a half I think where um where it's become about the idea that the, that the creativity is is um, is irrevocably linked to this concrete idea of what a creative product looks like. you know so yeah. it's a, yeah. so it's a thing or it's a and and so all of the value association has gone has gone to that thing, but actually the value is in the creative process. The value is in the thinking and in the discovery and in the journey you know no matter what that and if you t- if you change the value from the product to the process then actually a much broader range of products um a much broader range of outcomes as i like to call it um become valuable uh,
1: yeah right um, totally right totally
2: right right
0: hi it's tash Sorry for the brief interruption. We'll get right back to this episode in a second, but I wanted to say just a quick few things. The first is I would love your help in spreading the word about this podcast. One of the ways you can do that is by subscribing and then rating and reviewing this podcast in the iTunes store or wherever you like to get your downloads from. And I'd like to offer you a little something in return as a way of saying thanks and extending the conversation. One of my favourite authors, Brene Brown, has just released a great new book on leadership called Dare to Lead, putting in place some of the principles around shame and vulnerability that she talked about in her previous books, Rising Strong and Daring Greatly. So. Rate, review, take a screenshot, share it to social media, and tag me at Tash McGill, hashtag the Transformationist. And I'll be giving away a Transformationist prize pack with a few other goodies too each week for the next month or so. And lastly, thank you so much for investing your time and joining us on the journey so far. I am so appreciating it. Join us in the Facebook group to get even more snippets of conversation. What's the key then? I mean, for somebody who is, for somebody who is a younger, um, for somebody who is, you know, perhaps a younger person who has this, who who is able to identify or is lucky enough to identify that they are a creative thinker, whether they are an engineer or a banker or a writer or or what have you, um, are there are there things that you are there things that you have stumbled on that you think are essential for for engaging and recognizing and maintaining the health of that creative process you know within yourself as you you know within the identity of a creative person?
1: Yeah, um, I mean there are so many. Um, so let's just focus on maybe one or two. Um, though um, just going back on the on the thing that you were saying earlier to do with the commercialization and the productization and the objectification really of, of creative output. Um, I had a friend who was uh, a friend who was working in recording studios in New York, and he was in a session one day. And the guy who was Sting's drummer for the first for the first live tour hmm. that Sting did after the police name was Omar Hakeem. He came into the studio to do a session, and he was wearing a t shirt that said, "I'm just trying to make a little music in the money business,"
2: <laughs>
1: right? Um, so that ex- exactly typifies what you're talking about. Uh, um, I gonna say that I feel like even it wouldn't matter if you were a, a musician or a chef or an artist or a filmmaker or you're an entrepreneur you're in Silicon Valley that the key things that make you great are what are the same things that make you vulnerable so you can't um, we spe- people who are in the creative industries you know spend a lot most of their time developing their skill set um, and I think people who are in any Professions spend most of their time developing their skill set. So, if you're a musician, you spend a lot of time practicing. And if you're a chef, you spend a lot of time cooking. If you're an architect, you spend a lot of time drawing, and so on and so forth. Uh, and if you're if you're a software engineer, for example, you spend a lot of time learning programming languages. And yet, those things and those, you need that you need those disciplines and protocols and skills, obviously, to be able to make anything. But before you have anything to make, you have to be you have to learn how to be vulnerable. Which is how you get curious and how you see things in the first place, and then, uh, and then. So how, the, you have to learn how to manage being vulnerable without finding yourself shut down. And then depending on where, on what area you work in, you know, depending on the sphere in which your creativity emerges. If you're an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley, for example, it's, it's highly likely that you're going to suffer anxiety and depression. One, one uh, startup CEO got up at a conference famously in Silicon Valley about two years ago and asked the question, and they were all. the room was full of only CEOs, mm. heads of companies, and said, How, who here suffers from anxiety? And every hand in the room went up. You know, every hand in the room. Um, and that's like, well, wait a minute, that's unheard of. What's going on? It's because the people who start these things have got, like, they've got these visionary ideas and they're trying to... Um, They've got this thing they can imagine in their heads and they're trying to they're trying to make it real. And of course if you're doing that in software, it's doubly difficult because you've got an idea and then the software in, in itself is a is a process of imagining. Software engineers imagine the code, imagine the language, and they have to try and write the code and write the language that will make the thing appear on the screen. So there's two levels of
0: Well, there's layer after layer of of creative thinking and also creative process to yeah absolutely i mean it's an occupational hazard right of of if you're going to engage in making anything new or you know conversely changing the system but but anything that's to do with that creative creation process uh, i think you know d- does spin you right out to the edge particularly particularly in the in the in the technology startup space where you're dealing with you know millions and millions and billions of, of venture capital dollars it's 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 big risk
1: it's a big risk. And so, you, um, so I think you highly creative think people need, are going into this space want to engage in creative thinking. You have to learn how to manage your vulnerability because we know from the research that if you're feeling vulnerable and you're feeling exposed and it's hurting you too much, then the normal response is to shut down. And, and, and so then we have this illusion that we could shut down selectively. You know, we shut down in this area, for example. Because you're open and vulnerable, you're open and vulnerable to everything. It turns out that you can't shut down selectively. So, for example, you might be open and vulnerable, like in your workspace, but then you have a relationship breakdown. And so that is too painful for you because you're open and vulnerable everywhere. So what you try and do is you go, I'm going to shut down in my personal relationship space. But you can't shut down down yourself selectively. You shut down everything. So... That response, which is to go right the walls are I'm closing off there i'm closing the walls in here so I can protect myself and not feel any pain uh, that doesn't work because then your your creativity dries up because you've shut down your ability to see because yeah. you're not vulnerable anymore
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and so then so then the other mistake that is commonly made is to medicate that pain so then now we're getting into you know alcohol consumption and we're getting into um, prescription medication, we're getting into non-prescription medication, we're getting into legal drugs and and those are things that actually help, you know, deal, they, they dull the pain or they, they, you know, they sort of insulate you temporarily from the pain but then what they do is they ultimately cause long-term damage to your ability to access memory and then that ultimately then your creativity dries up there as well.
0: Mm. And so, do you, do you think that um, just just going to the substance side of things for a moment do you think that having having identified that creative that creative thinkers have this um, high sensitivity to the sensory experience and when you start to deal with something that's mind altering yeah. you know that that is that part of the 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 danger zone and the susceptibility um, the susceptibility in that equation. It's why we see so many people who, you know, sort of sit within the traditional realms of of being a creative person, the musicians and the and the artists who who do struggle with um, you know, they struggle with with depression and then they struggle with um, alcohol or substance abuse of some form.
1: It's totally the case. So one of the things that goes on for highly creative thing is skinlessness, which means they are taking in more information. Mm. Um, and when you're taking in more information, you feel it. You feel it more deeply. You can't not feel it more deeply. And the choice, you, what are your choices? Well, your choices are medicate or shut down. You can't shut down because that's not going to work. Um, and then you medicate and you medicate. and that Ultimately, that doesn't work. So what people finish up doing is, oh, I'll be vulnerable for a while, then I'll medicate and I'll be vulnerable for a while, I'll medicate. You know, and so you... Full sort of forms this sort of spiral. And then the, diffi- the other difficulty is when you're engaging that divergent thinking, the fluid thought, where you're sort of flying along, making these improvisational connections between things, a bit like stand-up comedy or playing jazz or, or the process of sitting in a room with other people or coming up with ideas and things of that, the neurocognitive pathways of that experience are exactly the same or they're very, very close to the same, Neurocognitive pathways of methamphetamine use, so it's like a drug high,
2: Mm. and
1: and then when you do things like perform, if you perform in front of thousands of people, that's like a you get out of that's like a drug high, Um, and so what do you do on the other side of that? And so um, there are a whole bunch of uh, saner behaviours that allow you to manage those things and have long term long a long term longevity, a long term sustainable. Life, as opposed to because the alcohol, you know, it kills you in the long run if you if you abuse it. Um, it's, uh, it, I mean, you know, in some most of the countries listening to this, you know, the the, the um the the you know the death rate deaths caused by alcohol. The it's like you know sort of five percent, four percent of the population in countries like America or Australia or New Zealand. In Russia, it's twenty percent of the population. In Moldova, it's 24%, twenty four twenty five percent of the population. So. You abuse alcohol, it ends you you know mm, mm. Um, uh, and the same of course with non with illegal drugs that it ends you so you have to find other ways and you know there are other ways. so one of those so, some of those ways of being very, very disciplined about understanding that your life has a cycle of highs and lows and instead of trying to medicate highs and lows or resist them, what you do is you use you use those highs and lows you just you exploit the highs and lows for your work. Mm. You understand that the high is temporary, and on the other side of that high is a low, and that doesn't feel so great, but you can use that for your work.
2: Mm-hmm. I and mean, then the
1: other thing you, you need to do, you need to have, you absolutely must have, is a community of people around you who understand that you're kind of living on this roller coaster that it's not unhealthy, it's not wild, it actually just needs to be properly deployed mm. and properly harnessed.
0: So that, that combination of both. It's, it's both self-awareness and self-management. And so, you know, yes. making, making those key identifications about who am I, what's working for me, what's not working for me, and therefore how do I manage that? How do I manage that within self? But how do I manage that within vocation, you know, that idea of vocational management? Um, and I think, you know, the other component that strikes me there is rhythm. You know, how important it is to have an understanding of rhythm when you talk about the highs and the lows um yep. you know to, to understand, okay, this is the rhythm of how this is the rhythm of how I am and therefore because I know the rhythm I can I can work with it, I can play with it, I can I can move to the beat, I can stay in the momentum and the flow of my life without without all of a sudden, you know, getting getting offbeat because I because I slide down unexpectedly. Or because I pinnacle, you know, uh, perhaps perhaps when, when I'm not expecting it.
1: Yeah. But you you, you're right and so one of the ways you, one of the ways of doing that is to recognize that you need low tide times to re, to not just to recoup and recover but when you're at your low tide and your low ebb and you're not you know banging snapping and popping and like going off like like somebody threw a lit match into a, a box of fireworks you know something like that you know when you're not doing that and you're in this other that other people would look Look at you going. Cheer up. You, you know, you're getting depressed, and you know all that kind of stuff. And come on, pull yourself out of. You know, so what you actually do need is to have a good set of um, pro- disciplines and protocols around deliberately resting. You know, and deliberately, like retreating into a place that is actually insulates you properly. Mm. Um, and so that you're real, you kind of recognizing that that's this is the other side of what it means to actually. Live a creative life. That it is necessary to spend some time self-care, loving yourself. In the way of, man, sometimes I just need to maybe just need to read a book, or sometimes I just need to lock myself away and listen to like not listen to music because I'm making music. And sometimes I just need to go and sit on a beach or sit in a cafe for three hours. Um, and and then people look at that and you go, "What the heck are you doing?" You know, that um, because to an average person, their work. It's very, very, it's almost, particularly still in the 21st century, a lot of work is very machine-like.
2: Mm-hmm. It's a
1: human work. I go to an office, I, I turn on the computer, I'm here, I log in at 9 o'clock, I switch off at 5.30, you know, I have an hour for lunch, and then I'm, doing, I'm answering emails or I'm doing this So I've ta- set tasks and there's a beginning, a start time and an end time, you know, and then uh, and creative work is not like that, you know, it's uh, um, the, and the rhythms are utterly different it's not at all machine-like, and you can't treat creative people like cogs in a machine. You can't just keep pushing them to produce, 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 um, because they need time on the downside of the of their cycle. Does that make sense?
0: I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, there's a risk, and for me, there's a risk in in limiting that 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 necessity only to the creative thinker. But at the same time, I do I do wonder, and maybe it's because I may. A, I do wonder if I, I have this this ongoing conversation with my mother, seeing as we're talking about mothers. Um uh but I have this ongoing conversation with my mother where uh I you know I've 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 lived I've lived with the the the, the banner of, you know, you're an overthinker um for for the majority of my life and not because um, not really meant with any maliciousness, but rather meant as as to be a help. You know, come on, Tash, get out of your head, stop overthinking it. Um, but but my response to that, as I've grown, has become no, no, no. The time that I spend in my head, the time that I spend overthinking, is actually the time that 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 helps me to grow and to stay engaged and to stay connected with my own wellness. And uh, and she said something to me once that I thought was was truthful so truthful and so sad but t- truthful and also completely okay for some people um where she said yeah but the thing is tash is that not everybody wants to do the work some of us just want to live uh, and i think there, there's a there's a space for me where i think part of the if there was one thing about about being a creative thinker that's uh that's that's burdensome um that, and perhaps more burdensome than the others is that i think that I think that doing the work is a requirement. It's an absolute necessity for the creative thinker if a creative thinker is going to stay healthy. You know, if they're going to stay healthy and maintain or achieve um, achieve that vocational, you know, kind of fulfillment. But now I might be being i don't I don't know what do you What do you think?
1: No, you're circling right back around to we you know where we sort of started, which is. To do with voc, you know what I feel is my vocation, and, and so the the storyteller part, that's my creative thinking part, if you like. Does that make sense? That like that, yeah. that's where I get to express my creative thinking. So it's a, no, it's absolutely true. Um, you are if you are made to if you are made with to, with this kind of cyclic cyclothymic or up and down roller coaster kind of life in terms of your energy and your emotion and all those other things. Um, and you're thinking, uh, if that's the case, then you're wired to more readily access the creative process, so you better do something with it, um, otherwise it just torments you. So it is actually the the work that's important then, or it torments you, and then that's...
2: Um,
1: uh, I don't know. That's not. That's worse. That's that's terrible. Because you're going through the, the all the ups and downs and the highs and lows and getting nothing for it. You know, there's not. There's no out. There's no way in which any of that is fulfilled. So um, I feel like that is. Uh, yeah, sorry that you've been labelled as an overthinker. I mean, you know, I, if it was me, and I say no, I wouldn't say this. But I mean, if I wouldn't, if I were you, I wouldn't say this. But you know, if it was me, and my mother had said you're an overthinker, I'd say, well, you're an underthinker.
0: <laughs> um, oh no, she's you know, not. She's not. She's I'd really hit, not.
1: I'd hit it right back. I would no. I'm not <laughs> recommending you do that. I would just say that I, if it was me, I would hit it right back, and then, but that wouldn't end well, you know. So,
2: mm.
1: um, um, <clears throat> but you know, um, I because you see, I faced misunderstanding from my parents. Particularly, my mother. You know, my mother never understood me at all, Um, and and so what happened was we just sort of had this. uh, I think the word is a rapprochement. You know, we we were sort of we agreed not to agree, Mm. and then that went on for many, many years. And then she died, and I won. You know, because I'm, you know, because I'm still here. So if you can just keep uh,
0: breathing for the longest, you'll eventually win any argument. I've said that for years. Yeah. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. So, uh, you know, yeah, you're, we're circling back to this. Like, so you don't, you know, I mean, right now you're speaking, into, you're sitting at a computer speaking into a microphone. The microphone has been formed and fashioned to, to um, you know, to, to function in a certain way, you know, and it'll do well while ever you let it function and make it function in that way. But if you were to use it for something else like a cricket bat or a baseball bat, then it wouldn't function as all at all in that role. So the key thing is recognising because I, I hate words like function and purpose and calling, but I really love this notion of vocation, which is that we are fashioned for to fill up this a certain kind of space. So, if but if we if you if we deploy ourselves in ways that we are not fashioned for, of course, it's not going to work out well. And so, we therefore come back to the issue of the big journey. I mean, it's the big journey for every human on planet Earth, but the big journey, I think, for creative thinkers is to find out exactly how. Exactly how our the way we have been fashioned, the way we've come into the world, how those clusters, that cluster of things, is where that's meant to fit, you know. And that, like I guess, stuff took me decades. Well, right? I, think,
0: I think I mean, even with the even with the best possible start in life, I think I mean I think that work takes decades for anybody. Um, you know, I, I think I'm. I feel like I'm lucky enough to have stumbled into a sense of. To have stumbled into a sense of my own voc- vocation, um, you know, relatively early on, but but there's still so much there's still so much refining work to do in that. and I think part of like part of part of the challenge, particularly in the Western world, particularly in the English speaking world, is that we don't have, um, we've got a clumsy language for talking about some of these ideas and some of these concepts that that you know mean you know yeah, that just mean the way we classify and identify ourselves and therefore give ourselves permission to engage in the process of even unpacking and discovering uh, and exploring our, our actual identity and our actual vocations. Um, you know, we sometimes don't don't get the, give ourselves the opportunity to do it simply because we haven't been given permission to use, you know, those words of creative thinker or, you know, creative person or... Um, but that's a whole
1: other subject about that. There's a whole. So you're right. I mean, I think there is insufficiency in the language. I, I in the language. Or I feel I feel like um, my daughters have got a head start in terms of where I was. Um, I feel like they've found their grooves. Um, they found their their respective grooves. Uh, uh, you know, at, at younger ages than I did. I feel like I stumbled around. Mm. Um, and uh, I mean, I look back and go, I can see everything was a stepping stone. At the same time. I'm looking at people who are doing things like I've got friends who are filmmakers and they're in their like their late 20s, early 30s and they're making films. Uh, I've got a friend who lives in Los Angeles and she's just been directing, you know, like feature films. And I go, well, what the heck? You know, she's much younger. She had a, And she has a really clear sense of who she is and what she's meant to do, um, you know, at a much younger age than I did. I, I, I mean, I feel, honestly, I feel like a slow learner. <laughs> I, I feel like a slow learner um, in terms of these things. That's why I, I'm, it's great to talk to you about them, um, and it's great to talk to your audience about them. But I feel like I'm exposing myself as a slow learner, and suddenly here I am. I'm I'm in the Gumby class. <laughs> you know the you know what was the, You know everybody had a different. You know it was a different name mm-hmm. that they would give to those classes in school. You know, but it was really the coloring in department. You know, like everyone else is doing maths or or solving or doing science experiments but there was always one class of kids who were like, man we're just coloring in you know and I feel like that's been me I'm in the slow learner category. Um, so the only my, only my only hope is that I can live longer to compensate. Um, but I'm lying about my age. so um, <laughs> maybe that'll work.
0: Maybe, maybe it will. Um, I think. Yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't give yourself too much of a hard time about that was there something in particular that you that you did speaking of your daughters like was there something in particular that you did to 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 reframe their their growing up experience or their emergence into adulthood you know based on based on what you you and Julie had learned about about creative thinking and about you know how to how to do that did you intentionally try and give them opportunity to find that
1: creative expression earlier, yeah. Look, I, yes, yes. There are some things we did. Um, one of the and um, and uh, they have to remain a secret. No, no, <laughs> no, I, no. There, are, um, there are no. There are three secrets to ra- raising creative children. Unfortunately, nobody knows what they are. No, that no. The, we, there are some things. There are some things, and we uh, first of all we determined to not try and shoehorn them or fit them into any preconception so we spent we spent I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that I spent a both of us spent a lot of time and noticing them you know noticing and they're both different you know and both of our girls are different um, I turned out to be both in music and in and also working in different parts of the world but but they're both but they're both so different Um and the way they are working musically is is so different. Uh, I, we spend a lot of time noticing mm. and 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 then letting any inclination, like encouraging any inclination, like if they wanted to do a certain thing, then we would support them in that. You know, if they wanted to, one of them wanted to do dancing for a while, we did that. One of them wanted to learn singing for a while, we did that. One of them wanted to learn piano, we did that. You know, and then when they got bored of it, we'd let them move on to the next thing. So we weren't sort of um, kind of shoehorning them into a particular fit, mm. um, but we spent we did we spent a lot of time noticing, and we spent a lot of time encouraging and affirming, and then we just didn't let them grow up in that con- in that kind of context. They grew up with there they was they both grew up with a lot of music in the house, but I wasn't trying to force them. I didn't want to force them into being one thing or another. I didn't want to certainly didn't want to force them into being musicians just because I was one. Um, I mean, it's beautiful that they are. I mean, I actually collaborate with them creatively, funnily enough. It's—I mean—that's extraordinary. But it would have been just as great for me if they—if they decided to become psychologists or if they wanted to be a fire fireman, a fireperson, or go into the you know workers in the police force, or whatever. You know, like you love your kids, but at the same time, we just spend all the time noticing, and in the noticing, we would—it's almost like people when the, when little kids sort of drop hints, really. You know mm. that. Um, they sort of drop hints by, by the sort of things that they talk about and what they wish for and their, what they would ide, you know, and then, you, and then they'll say, you know, in the general conversations, they'll say something that, um, that you know, that lets you into the, what's going on in their inner world and you've just got to be noticing. You, can't, you just can't afford to be dismissive of those moments. You've got to be on your toes. So we essentially noticed and then responded to what they, their inner world seemed to be saying and, and we did and then we did everything we could to support and encourage those things. And so you know they'd want to do little shows, we'd do we'd, we'd sit and listen to the little shows you know and they wanted to do a dance and, we'd sit and, we'd, and we went to a lot of dance things and went to you know a lot of that stuff. Um, and then as they got older and became more um, sort of aware of their own impulses, you know, in the high school age, we kind of, we we did everything we could to nurture and encourage those impulses. And we sent one of them to a creative arts high school, temporarily sort of turned out to be not as good as we thought it was going to be. And then we transferred her to another school where there was an incredibly good music teacher. And he, he took her under his wing and turned her and, you know, did stuff with her in high school in the music course that we could never have done as parents. I could never have done as a parent. And then so things like that, you know, um, just uh, my advice to, to everybody is to encourage and you can't, you can't let kids play and explore enough, you know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And don't, you know, and my other encouragement to your parents is, oh, you know, don't shut kids down. Let them explore, let them play and don't, you know, n- you know never say to, to little kids like, you know, that's stupid. But the, the imaginative world needs to be fostered and given lots of freedom. Um, kids know what you know kids know what's imaginative and what's not imaginative, they know what's real world. and and the, the but the world of the imagination is where is the earliest training you get in delving into that part of your toolkit that you need as a creative maker later on.
2: Because
1: mm-hmm. you know you need it, what you're doing. Creative people are really they're living a life of faith really, weirdly, as that sounds, as weird as that sounds. Because almost every day the work of being a creative person is to make something that's invisible visible
0: yeah
1: and it's an act of faith
0: well it is it's walking it's walking right out to the edge of the cliff to to, yeah. to steal your phrase um, and it's it's doing that every it's doing that every day um,
1: yeah which is, sometimes' walking off the cliff <laughs> you know.
0: but fa- but failure is failure is the fastest way to learn you know it's, um, yeah. it's I've always
1: found that yeah, it is. I've always found that the idea of plummeting earthwards is a great way to learn how to fly, because the alternative is not is death. You know, so there's nothing. I'm in mean, in situations where I I've been in situations where I've gotten to the point I've actually written songs while I was playing. I was halfway through a song and I wrote a song in the in my head and then I started playing it live. I was in a ba- I was at a, with a, there was a band playing with me. And they were bunch of young musicians and I scared the heck out of them because all of a sudden there's this different song happening you know (laughs) um and I just sort of thought to myself well follow me here's an audience I'm doing it you can either crash and burn or stop or pick it up and follow me and so they all went rigid for about sort of 30 seconds and then finished up following me you know
0: Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, that, that surprises me that surprises me not at all you know one of the uh I think one of the, one of the, when it comes to the the transformation process, one of the great gifts, I think, that creative people have often, that a a healthy, well-adjusted creative thinker has, um, is that, you know, so many people are paralysed, they're paralysed with fear at the idea of changing something in the uh, changing something in their world, or doing something new or doing something different, um, but what I and and so that prevents them from moving forward because they'll say things like, "Well, I'm just not ready for I'm not ready for that change. I'm not ready for I'm not I'm not ready to, to make that move. I'll do it, but but only when I'm ready." And and that's actually kind of mythology because you're never really ready for change. All you have to be is 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 ready to jump. You just have to be ready to commit to it. And I think that's something that that creative thinkers, they live in that tension all the time because they, they, you have to commit to it. You you know, an idea is nothing until you make something of it. And so whether it's a, whether it's, a, you know, a song that you're writing on the spot, um, you, you've only got, you know, you're really your only choice is to commit to it and to do it because then the moment is gone, you know, and uh, the idea um, might move absolutely. on to someone else.
1: Uh, absolutely. I sort of actually, uh, absolutely. No, you're absolutely correct. I feel like that's, I feel like, um i you know i feel like um nobody is people who talk about their, they really love change generally speaking i feel like nobody nobody it's incredibly uncomfortable it's it, um because real change is actually unpredictable what's going to happen is unpredictable because you know uh, you really do actually when you do talk about what we're talking about going off the cliff or you know the improvise the sudden improvisation Or you know, you know, when you're doing something for the first time, you have no idea necessarily how it's going to work out, and it is more frightening than people care to admit. I'm just you and I, just admitting it, and (laughs) we haven't really talked so much. We haven't really talked so much about transformation, and and one of the um, you know before the mic went before we started recording, and you were talking about what the the podcast was about. I sort of felt like some one of the things that I wanted to touch on, if I could, was this notion of um of what when you're a, if you're a creative maker, a creative, or a doer, you're either making or doing something. You know, as a creative maker, thinker, creative thinker, creative maker, creative doer. Um, I feel like something that you actually, and something you actually mentioned earlier, was this notion of how it gets can be really cheap and superficial and commercialized, and and, and of course that's the case. And there are plenty of, and I've been involved in plenty of projects where I sort of feel like I'm. I'm a high class whore, really, musically speaking. Um, uh, you know that is, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not committed. I'm, I'm applying all my skills, but I'm not emotionally committed. And I'm doing it because you're paying me that, that kind of thing. I try not to act like that, but you know, it's inevitable that some, from time to time you will. But the the biggest moments for me, the most important moments for me in my life as a as a creative maker, have actually utterly changed me. The experience of um, there are some songs, for example, that I've written, or some pieces of music that I've written that have actually changed me. I had the experience of writing uh, a, a small piece of music that involved me um, singing a melody line, and it was a it was for a theatrical performance. It was like a ninety second piece of music or two minute piece of music, and it was like a it was like an overture for a for a for a live theatrical show, mm-hmm. and I and I. Can look back at that moment and realise that it was one of the one of it was one of two or three things that actually helped drag me out of a period of depression. Um, I can credit that application of my creative thinking in that moment to helping me emerge from depression.
2: Mm. You
1: can't get more transformation on that. And I've been in um, moments in recording studios. F- for example, where the where the players were brought to tears, um, I I know one I know of a singer who was recording a piece of music in the recording studio, and in the middle of the vocal, she felt as if she had suddenly been healed of an internal wound that had plagued her for most of her life, um, and um, I I feel like they are the they the high, they're high points for me, where the, the actual experience of making something in the moment of doing, of the moment of the doing, the moment of the creation—not just the moment, but the act of it—has changed me substantially. And there, I'm looking. I look back at a, at a number of things that I've been involved with, and I feel like the, the ones that are the most real and the most extraordinary to me—they're not necessarily the most successful, the most extraordinary. Changed me in the doing of them. I was transformed by the doing of them. Does that make sense?
0: I think it absolutely makes sense. There's there's part of there's part of me that that believes uh, a creative a creative person is probably the ultimate example of um, you know is the ultimate archetype archetype of um, you know doctor heal thyself. Um, there are so many people who engage in creative processes as a as a way of. and actually, I'm, I've t- you know talked to a guest on this podcast about the 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 way that art journaling um, helped helped her through a through a physical healing process. but you know, I think it does. it makes it makes total sense that 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 the creative process, that that creativity can lead us to our own. Uh, we can be our own help, you know, and and those ideas that you talked about in terms of you know applying that ability to see, the ability to see and to notice things, to observe things, the ability to move the mind rapidly to make connections between ideas, you know, of why wouldn't we then be able to notice and observe ourselves as as creative people, and to notice our own patterns, and then connect that with other ideas and things that are going on and sometimes do that entirely subconsciously and yet that's the work of, you know, change. And, and my, I mean, I think it's a, a marvellous idea. I, I'm, I, I have a sense of infatuation with the idea, in fact, that, that we could be as moved or as struck or as helped um, by our own creative output, by our own making of things, you know, as somebody is who you know who who encounters or reads a great a great poem, or you know here's you know here's a symphony for the first time. Yeah, I, I I completely I completely agree.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's possible to not do that. Too. I mean, I think it's possible <laughs> for you. But what I'm saying is, I think there are plenty of people who work in creative industries who just going, <coughs> excuse me, they have the skills and they apply the skills and it's they're sort of essentially problem solving and there's not they don't have the same level of deep emotional commitment but i mean um there's a guy that i work with in sydney and he runs a consulting company is an intensely creative guy and i think almost every single one of his consulting relationships has ended in some some sort of disappointment because he is so personally engaged with what the client what he's trying to do for the client and then when they for example they might take 80 percent of what he's asked of what they originally you know offered for him. i mean there's I don't know how much money's involved, but, I mean, I think there's significant money involved because he does high-level consulting. I mean, he gets really personally attached to it. Okay. And then, of course, when the client doesn't always come through, you know, like sometimes they only get by 70% or sometimes they only 80%, but he's going for gold the whole way. And he's so invested. Um, and then when what am- what amounts to, on the other side, is what amounts to a, com- it's, for them, it's a commercial relationship. Look, we're paying you to do this. We want this part. We don't want that part, but, you know, to deal with it. But he, he is so invested, um, and I feel like it would be easier, right, it would be easier emotionally not to be invested, to just go put the skills together and, you know, and, and whatever. Um, now, I think there are plenty of people who are doing uh, work that's um, in inverted commerce you know, creative work, in inverted commas, <laughs> uh, but, but who are not invested, I seem to keep their soul and their inner being separate. So I just I just look at m- the, the biggest and the most important moments for me and, of course, they're in music, in my, you know, because that's mostly my, my shtick, you know, um, and I still listen to that music and I, and I, I marvel at what it did for me. Um, I saw an interview with Michael Parkinson and Sting. And man, I have never been able to find this on YouTube. Uh, it, was, you know, it was like the '80s or '90s, and I mean, it predates the internet. I think the interview really predates YouTube. But um, Michael Parkinson asked Sting this question. So intriguing. The question was: uh, So do you, um, you know, when you're performing these songs night after night, you feel, you know, do you, how do you, you know do you feel what you feel when you, you know, when you wrote them? Do you go back the original feelings? And Sting, like, he laughed. He, he was. He, he treated the question with like he went, it was like, of course not, what are you, it was sort of like, he didn't actually say this, but what, what are you, stupid? Like it was that kind of thing. Yeah, like, a,
0: little, kind of a little disdain, Crickton.
1: Yeah. A little dis, 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 disdain, but, you know, obviously polite because we're here, we're on television, it's BBC and all that kind of stuff and it's Michael Parkinson and all that kind of deal. Um, and, but he, um, he said, by way of explanation, he said, if I felt what I was feeling when I wrote the songs, I would not be able to perform them.
2: Mm.
1: I think what, he, what the question was is what it, Sting said. I think the question actually might have been because, you know, I'm going back sort of 20 years now. You know, Michael Parkinson might have asked him, What do you feel when you play the songs? When you perform these songs, what do you feel? And, he said, and Sting said, I feel nothing. Mm. <laughs> and that was what started the What don't you feel what you feel when you wrote them? And that's when Sting laughed and goes, No, I felt what I felt, you know. I, and I, and it's, it touched me because I thought, Oh, yeah, that man, that's right that's right what he felt when he to what he, what it, what the, what happened to him in the writing of the song what he was feeling that brought that song into being the things that actually made that invisible thing become visible are two they're too extraordinary to be able to have to keep reliving them night after night after mm. night in the performance you just can't do it you
2: know yeah i mean
1: one of them one of them is the song uh, every breath you take which has been sung at countless weddings you know Uh, And it's the Sting song, every every move you make, every breath you take, I'll be watching you because everybody thinks it's a love song, but it was actually a song about his ex-wife stalking him.
2: Mm.
1: He wrote the song about a stalker.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And so suddenly the song becomes a whole lot more sinister. You know, every move you make, Mm -hmm. every breath you take, I'll be watching you is different from a lover saying, I'm watching you breathe, I'm watching you move because I'm, I'm so drawn to you. So the song is about a stalker and, and sort of suddenly got misunderstood and this play been played at millions of weddings worldwide, which I think is actually really phenomenally funny. <laughs> but, at the, but, but, you know, when you think about that, you can't, you can't get up and play this song, you know, and feel like I've got this creepy, weird stalker person threatening me. You know, how do you, you couldn't possibly re, relive that, that emotion in its, in, its fullness, in its fullness, relive all of that stuff. Night after night after night, show after show after show. You know, so, um, so I feel like my my big argument here is that the Sting feels it. You know, he feels he feels the the power of those moments, and I think, um, you know, the, I, I feel like there's a lot of evidence around on, uh, you know, when other creative people talk about their work, um, to suggest that. Uh, you know that is not an isolated experience. That it's a that is a felt experience. Mm. That the transformation mm. of of making the work is a felt experience amongst an enormous number of highly creative thinkers. Mm-hmm. Not and not just not just in the arts,
2: you know. Mm.
1: So uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to drop that one in.
0: <laughs> I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. I think it was a it was a very necessary drop in,
1: yeah. And and um and then sold as an electrolyte, but let's discuss that on another time.
0: <laughs> Will you come back?
1: I'll come back. Of course, I'll come <laughs> back. You know, I'll come back. I can't. Oh, I can't. I'm your favourite Australian. How could I not come back?
0: Well, exactly. Plus, you know,
1: how could I not come? Like, you know, the stakes are too high. <laughs>
0: The stakes are too high. Um, you've got, you, you've got your, you've got yourself kind of still, you know, as you said at the at the at the top of the show, um, hanging on the, uh, you're you're hanging on the edge of failure with, you know, study and research and work and, um, the many things that you do to to, to keep yourself from um from being bored. Um, if mm. is the best place for people to connect with your work. Uh, the Living with a Creative Mind book. That's the website Living a Creative
1: website uh, for the book is Mind.com. we're not on amazon yet that's a thing that's on my to-do list we're, but we ship direct anywhere in the world from our website it's just more expensive here in the us or the uk although there is a downloadable EPUB version there if you want the book so that's mind.com. um typically highly creative people buy the book and then never read it so <laughs> we have we um and that's the <laughs> when i come back to them you, you, like even years later there's this Terribly, almost an ashamed confession, I haven't read it and I just feel like saying, you know, hey, you're not alone, don't worry. Um, We have an online subscription service which is maybe the best, maybe the quickest way to get to these ideas Um, and that's um, zebracollective.com and that's five Australian dollars a month and for that you get a a daily email which is meant to provoke your creative mojo Mm. Um, and then you get a, um, and, we, and we launch a new five-minute video every week. And that, that, those five-minute videos are typically um, either interviews with Julie or myself or interviews with highly creative practitioners from around the world. We conduct, we've spent a number of years gathering and curating this material and it's people like um, uh, Kimbra um, and uh, people like um, Peter Sargent, the Australian actress. Uh, people like uh, George Lois, the last surviving original Madison Avenue advertising guy. Mm. 80, he was 80, 84 when I interviewed him. and still alive and he's amazing. Uh, people like Morgan Rimmel, who was the founding director of the School of Life and turned it from an idea into a worldwide phenomenon. Um, so people um, like the um, US actor Pearson Foday. So we, <clears throat> we uh, people like um, oh, yeah. Tim... Farris from NXS, for example, we interviewed him. So these are um, interviews about the same kinds of things that we've been talking about, the very same things that we've been talking about. Um, you know, what's your creative practice? How do you manage yourself? What? How do you manage your ups and downs? You know, what? how do you deal with, you know, the sort of assault on the senses? and mm. You know, all of those kinds of things. Things you know, well, so, and I
0: can give my ringing endorsement. The 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 zebra collective email when it arrives in my inbox every day without fail is the email that I always I always open it. It's good. It's provoking.
1: You sir. Well, thank you. We're, you're a sweetheart. I mean, we're, so our little mantra. You're a sweetheart for saying that. It's a good, <laughs> um, um, our, our little man. Our little mantra is uh five seconds a day, five five minutes a week, five dollars a month. There we go. So uh, it and it's the idea of that is it just it you drip feed. It drip feeds you, you um, it erodes you into a better creative person <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a it's a gradual process but it really does work you
0: know? uh, very good thank you so much for taking the time to join us I really appreciate everything that you uh, shared with the conversation
1: um, you are most welcome I'll see you next time
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Transformationist. We hope that the journey doesn't stop here. For more information about this episode and materials we referenced, please visit thetransformationist.org or join the Facebook group for more conversation about this week's episode. Just search for The Transformationist by Tash McGill on Facebook. This episode was written and produced by Tash McGill with production support from Truthwork Media and music is by Hans Van Vliet. The Transformationist is brought to you by Solar Feeder Consulting and tashmcgill.com.